Good evening. Uh, welcome to HCC Northside. My name is Kyle. I'm the pastor here. And thank you to uh, Andrew and the band here. They, they led worship at HCC Pilsen uh, this morning, and they came here this evening. So thank you guys for that. And uh, some, of you here were, some of you were here this morning, and it's great to have you uh, back. Some of you have been coming to our previous services in the past, and it's great to have you back again. And some of you, it might be the, the first time that you've uh, been here to one of our evening services, and we're especially glad to have you. I hope to be able to connect with you personally uh, tonight, perhaps over, over dinner. Uh, here in our evening services, we've been looking at how the book of Ecclesiastes takes us into the whole realm of human experience, and it looks for something that will last, something that will give this life meaning, something that will give this, this that will be truly pleasing. And so far, the writer of this book, who, who calls himself the preacher and the king in Jerusalem, has given human wisdom a fair shot, but that didn't work. He looked at pleasure, just physical pleasure, that didn't work either. In the months ahead, we'll see how he gives wealth and health a shot. But tonight, it's work. Maybe the secret to a meaningful and satisfying life is in what you do, your work. There's a movie that came out 20 years ago called Office Space. And I can't, as a pastor, I can't recommend the movie to you, to your family, for for obvious reasons, but it strikes a nerve with how a lot of people experience work. Peter Gibbons, an office drone, is meeting with a therapist, and he says this. He says, so I was sitting in my cubicle today, and I realized ever since I started working, every single day of my life has been worse than the day before it. So that means that every single day that you see me, that's on the worst day of my life. The therapist says, what about today? Is today the worst day of your life? Yeah, Peter says, to which the therapist responds, wow, that's messed up. That's, that's the line I use in my pastoral counseling all the time. That's, that's messed up. But Peter's experience, as darkly funny as it is, is not that far off from the writer of Ecclesiastes. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 18 through 26. And if you're using these blue Bibles, this is on page 554, so Ecclesiastes 2, 18 through 26, page 554. I hated all my toil, in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are, are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. So what I want to show you this evening is that, that your work isn't enough. It's a good thing, but it's not enough. You need something else to be for you what you hope your work can be for you. Your work isn't enough. 
First of all, though, work is actually really good. It's not enough. It can never be ultimately satisfying and meaningful for you, but it can never be the thing that gives your life ultimate significance and hope. But that doesn't mean that it's not good. Work is actually very, very good. The story of the Bible, the story of humanity, as the, the story of the world, as the Bible tells us, is that we were created to work. We were created by a supremely creative and industrious God to be like him, to be creative and industrious ourselves. The Garden of Eden, for Adam and Eve, was not a place to lounge around. It was a place to work. It was a great place to work. It had great benefits and working conditions, except for the snakes. But the point of people being there was to work. It was a place to get your hands dirty. We're created to work. Where work is a good thing. And when we don't have work, that's a bad thing. It can be a bad thing. When we can't do what we're made to do, or when we won't do what we're made to do, it can wear on our souls. In 1989, two psychologists at the University of Chicago did a study of Chicago workers, and they found that most people wish they were somewhere else. No surprises there. Most people are not in love with their jobs, and they they daydream about being somewhere else or doing something else. Nothing earth-shattering about that conclusion. But here's what's surprising. Those same workers said, the same ones who said that that they wish they could be somewhere else, also said that they feel better and they're less anxious at work than anywhere else. So the psychologists called this the paradox of work, which says that many people are happier complaining about jobs than they are luxuriating in too much leisure. We're made to work. Work is a good thing. Other research has found that long-term unemployment can be as emotionally devastating as losing a loved one. Because one of the things that helps when you are grieving is being able to do something, like work. But if you're unemployed, you don't always have that resource of being able to do something. Back in the Great Recession 10, 11 years ago, my my wife and I went through what was uh, undoubtedly our, our, our hardest time together in our marriage. and Because at, at that time, for almost two years, we were struggling with infertility on the one hand, and I was extremely underemployed on the other. And even though those two experiences are, are vastly different, there was something parallel in how infertility was devastating to my wife and unemployment was devastating to me. We're made to work. Work is a very good thing. And to not have it can be a very bad thing. So work is good, but it's not enough. In this passage in Ecclesiastes, the preacher who's on this quest to find meaning and significance tries work. He tries labor. So if wisdom has come up short and pleasure came up short, then maybe work will hit the mark. But work doesn't work. It's not enough. And four times in the section, he says that it was Vanity. Verse 19, this also is vanity. Verse 21, this also is vanity and a great evil. Verse 23, this also is vanity. Verse 26, this also is vanity and a striving after wind. It's not enough. And there are three reasons why it's not enough, he says. The first reason is that you're going to die. And everything that you've worked for is going to be snatched out of your hands. So the preacher says, first of all, in verses 18 and 19, that that after you die, all that you've built will be passed on to someone else. 
And of course, for us in our culture, we can add retirement to this picture. But the same goes for retirement. When you retire, your job goes to someone else. And maybe you'll be happy to retire and put your work behind you. But, but if what you've accomplished is something that matters to you, that's all coming out of your hands and into someone else's hands. And eventually, after you're out of the picture, you've, you have absolutely no control over whether or not the person who inherits what you've built will be a fool who ruins it all. Your work can't be ultimately significant for you because you don't know if someone else is going to burn it all down. He makes a similar point in verses 20 and 21, but now he says that he gives his heart up to despair because he's going to die and all the fruits of his labor, all his wealth, everything that he's earned is going to be enjoyed by someone else, not him. He's not around anymore to enjoy it. According to Forbes magazine, the number one factor in job satisfaction is whether or not you or someone else can appreciate your work. In other words, can you see what you've accomplished and take pride in it? And can other people see what you've done and recognize it? Your salary and benefits are down at number eight on the list. Which means that you can make a million dollars, but if there's nothing tangible to show for it, you might not really enjoy it. That's why maybe you've had this, this kind of experience, but where you, you spend all day answering emails and putting out fires and jumping from one meeting to the next and getting interrupted by yet another crisis, which really isn't a crisis, but even the people are treating it like a crisis. And you come home, you're just worn out and frazzled, and then you do the dishes And that work of doing the dishes is more satisfying than all those emails and meetings because you can actually see the good work you've done. You've accomplished something meaningful and you can see it. That's what goes into job satisfaction. But the preacher says, you can have the highest job satisfaction in the world. You can can see, you can do good work and see the good work you've done. And that can make you very, very happy, but only temporarily. Because you're going to die. And all that good work, all the good benefits that came from your work will go into the hands of someone else. And who knows what will happen after that. This is vanity, he says. Second reason why work's not enough. Because it's full of trouble. Now, this one might as well go without saying. that You already know this. that The reason your work can never be ultimately satisfying is because it's often not satisfying at all. Verse 23 says that your days of work are full of sorrow and vexation, and at night your heart doesn't rest. So the whole 24-hour period when you're on the clock and when you're off the clock can be plagued by the troubles of your work. At a previous job one morning, there was a lull in the busyness of the day, and I was with a few coworkers milling around, and we were just standing around for a moment. There was nothing to do, so we just got to chatting, and we were just joking around about something. I don't know what it was about, but we were just sharing a moment of lighthearted camaraderie. And at that moment, our manager walked in the room, saw us standing around and laughing, and she yelled at us to get back to work and threatened that she'd send us home if we didn't get busy right away. And she walked out, back out, so we start kind of ambling around, looking for something useful to do. And one of my coworkers voiced how we were all feeling in that moment. I hate my job. Maybe there's a few people out there who've never felt that way, 
but just a few. Most people I know have at least thought privately, if not expressed publicly, I hate my job. It's full of trouble. And what makes it so troublesome, the preacher says, is that it's not that you can do your work during the day, and even if you hate it, you can come home and rest and relax and enjoy yourself. No, because the troubles of your work follow you even into bed at night. And if anything, this is getting worse for us in our culture, in this economy. One journalist has written about the mushrooming prevalence of what he calls shadow work. Shadow work, he says, is the unremunerated labor we now do ourselves that once got done by others for pay. Like pumping your gas, or assembling your furniture, or booking your travel plans. That People used to get paid to do that for you, and now you're doing it for yourself and not making a penny for it. In other words, even when you're not working, you might still be working. And it goes deeper than that, though. The preacher says that what happens at night isn't what's going on with your hands, the work you do with your hands, but instead it's the restless anxiety of your heart. You work during the day, and you worry about your work at night, maybe even to the point of losing sleep over it. It's full of trouble. The productivity guru, Cal Newport, advocates for shutting off all distractions during the day so you can concentrate on your most important cognitively demanding work. But when you hit 5 p.m., or whenever quitting time is for you, you quit, he says. So if you want to do great work, Newport says, don't work after hours, don't work on the weekend. As some of us, I'm still trying to follow myself. I'm trying to let the emails go until Monday morning. And I have to confess that having a job where the big event is always on a Sunday uh, makes it harder to take weekends off. But I'm trying. But even if you manage to be rigid with your quitting time and you really stopped working when it was time to stop working, your heart, the preacher says, would still be going. You'd still be worrying. You'd still be anxious. Now think about that for a moment. Think about what's going on in your heart when that happens. For some people, that anxiety is tied directly to the real-life consequences of your work. Uh, William Carlos Williams expressed this better than anyone else I know in his poem, The Red Wheelbarrow, which says, the the whole poem, So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. Which means that for a farmer... So much depends, your livelihood, whether or not you have food on the table, so much depends on this one tool. It's a a manual laborer's anxious, restless heart captured in this one image. And maybe you're in a vocation where you have no job security because your security is at every moment tied to your job performance. If you work for a corporation and you have have to meet performance benchmarks that are set by an algorithm, you probably can resonate with the farmer in that wheelbarrow. For most of us, though, I think the fears that keep us up at night aren't, will I be able to eat or will I lose my job, but it's, will those people like the work I've done? Will I be accepted and valued by my managers and coworkers? Think about it this way. Why is it so hard to leave everything at the office? 
Why can it be so hard to be present with the people around you because your attention, your concern is still in that meeting or that email or that project? Because it's captured your heart. What the preacher is saying is that the trouble with work isn't just external. It's not just that your job is hard or your manager is an idiot or the pay is lousy. That's part of it. It's full of sorrow and vexation. But that's not all of it. It's not just external. It's also internal. It's about how your heart relates to your work, which is to say that your work can also be a matter of worship. Derek Thompson, a journalist who writes on work and technology, says that with the decline of traditional religion like Christianity, there have been a rise of, of, of other kinds of worship in its place. So some people worship beauty, he says. Some people worship political identities. Some people worship their families. Uh, where I'm from, a, a few sports teams we played yesterday are the object of a lot of people's worship. But Thompson says that everybody worships something, and for a lot of people, what he calls workism is at the top of that list of new religions. Workism, he says, is the belief that work is not only necessary for, to, to economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose. And he says that in the religion of workism, the best educated and highest earning Americans who can have whatever they want have chosen the office for the same reason that devout Christians attend church on Sundays. It's where they feel most themselves. In other words, work is about your identity. It's who you are. And that comes at a cost. Because like every religion, it requires a sacrifice. Thompson says that the problem with this gospel, this gospel of that your dream's always out there so never stop working, is, is that it's a blueprint for spiritual and physical exhaustion. Long hours don't make anybody more productive or creative. They make people stressed, tired, and bitter. And maybe that's why your heart can't rest at night. Because it's not just work. It's workism. It's religious. It's spiritual. And when your work becomes a religion, when what you do becomes who you most truly are, that means that your work has become an angry, needy, vengeful God that demands you sacrifice your life for it. So everything you work for won't last. Your, your work is full of trouble. One more reason why work isn't enough. Why it can't ever be enough. Because you have no guarantee that you'll ever be able to enjoy any of it. Verses 24 to 26 are the most debated in this section. Let me read again verses 24 and 25. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? So eat, drink, enjoy your work. There's nothing better than that. And all that comes from God. It's a gift of God. Scholars debate this section whether it's optimistic or pessimistic. Those who say it's optimistic say that for the first time in this book, the clouds have parted for a moment and the light is finally shining in and the preacher finally has a moment of spiritual clarity and his dead-end pursuit to find something worthwhile takes, in his work takes a U-turn and he sees that you really can find enjoyment in the simple pleasures of life, which, which God's, God gives you as a gift, including the pleasures of your work. That's the optimistic view. 
I take the pessimistic view. The pessimistic view says that finding enjoyment in these gifts is a hypothetical possibility, but not a possibility that, that the preacher has any confidence that he'll actually experience for himself. Verse 26 says that, For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. Scholars who take the pessimistic view say that rather than seeing this as good people who make God happy and sinners who make God angry, a better way to translate this is just people who please God and people who don't without any moral judgments about why they please him or why they don't. In other words, in the preacher's outlook, God smiles on some people and he gives them enjoyment in their work and he frowns on other people and takes away the joy of their work and who knows which category you'll be in. God's mysterious like that. So he finishes the section with the same pessimism as he began. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Now, maybe you don't go quite as far as the preacher. Maybe your outlook isn't quite this hopeless. I mentioned a few months ago that when the Bible was being officially put together, there were many Jewish theologians who didn't think that this book belonged in it because of how pessimistic it is. Now, thankfully, I think the book of Ecclesiastes made it, and it's a wonderful contribution to the Bible, But it is surely the Eeyore of all the books of the Bible. The preacher is a glass, half-empty kind of guy. But what's his point here? His point is that, sure, it's possible to find meaningful joy in your work. And if you find that, you should be grateful because it's a gift of God. But who knows if that will be you? You have no guarantee that you'll ever be able to find that kind of genuine joy in what you do. Again, there's a very pessimistic way of looking at it, but I wonder if our own work patterns prove his point. According to, the, to data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, a long-term study of baby boomers showed that on average, people will hold almost 12 jobs between the ages of 18 and 48. 12 jobs in 30 years for my parents' generation. Surely it's even higher for my generation. So if finding joy and fulfillment in what we do was easier, surely that number would be lower. But we have no guarantee for that. So our resumes get longer and longer and longer. Work's not enough. Or as the preacher puts it, this also is vanity. So work is good. It's very good. But it's not enough. It can't be what you look for to give your life true value and meaning. It can't be what establishes your true identity. Because your death means that you, your work won't last, your work is full of trouble, and you'll never have any guarantee that you'll be able to find true enjoyment in any of it. Now, it's Sunday night. You're going into the office in the morning. And if you listen to the rite of Ecclesiastes... The honest thing to do is to go into the office with an epically bad case of the Mondays. How do you get through that? How can you go into something tomorrow, which is is good in itself, and yet never ultimately satisfying? Here's how. Here's what the Bible says. There is work which is ultimately meaningful. 
There is work that will not be undone by death. There is work that guarantees joy from God. It's just not your work. It's the work of Jesus. Your work is not enough. But Jesus' work is. Theologians have a phrase called the work of Christ. The the work of Christ is what Jesus did, what he accomplished. It's his living the life that you were meant to live. It's his dying the death you were meant to die because of your rebellion against him. And then his work of being raised from the dead and ascending into heaven and and ruling over the the world as as king today. That's that's Jesus' work. And it's enough. And when you trust in his work, when you trust in his perfect life and his atoning death and his resurrection, then your work can have a meaning and a purpose, even a joy, when you work for him and in him. Here's what I mean. That's what the Apostle Paul says. In his book, First Corinthians, he spends paragraph after paragraph saying that, that Jesus really has been raised from the dead. Death didn't have the last word for him. And because Jesus was raised from the dead, Paul says that everyone who trusts in him will be raised from the dead with him, in him. And because that's true, because Jesus has won this great victory over death, here's what Paul says this means for your work. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The preacher in Ecclesiastes says that in itself your work is always in vain. Paul says that in Christ, your work for Christ is never in vain. Everything you do, whether it's your 9 to 5 gig, whether it's the work of basic faithfulness, when that work stops being about validating your identity, or fulfilling your desires, but it becomes about loving and serving God and other people. When your work has been shaped like that, it really matters. It's meaningful. It's not in vain. And because of the work of Christ on the cross for you, your restless heart can actually find rest in him, even when your body can't. Because there will always be sorrow and vexation in your work, There will always be frustrations. There will never be that much endless joy in it. And I think especially for the mothers of young children, you know this better than anyone else. But your heart can rest when it's resting in the work of Jesus and not trying to rest in your own work. The Bible says that Jesus' work on the cross to die in your place frees you from the work of trying to earn anything from God. Because in Jesus, you already have everything from him. And that's why his love for you, his acceptance of you, comes to you through grace and what he did, which you received by faith, and not by your good works. To put that another way, in Jesus, your anxious, restless heart can finally rest because you have nothing to prove, nothing to earn. Because of the work of Jesus, you can have a guarantee that the writer of Ecclesiastes never knew. For him, God is this mysterious, distant character, and you never really know how he's going to deal with you. But through Christ, you already have the guarantee of what matters the most. That he's not distant. He's with you. He's not arbitrary. He's for you. He's not just the giver of some gifts to some people some of the time. He's the giver of every good gift, especially the gift of his son, Jesus. 
which means that even if your work tomorrow is drudgery, even if no one thinks, notices a thing about it, no one thanks you for it, even if your pay is a fraction of what you deserve, in Jesus, in the work of Jesus for you, you have the guarantee that even if you don't have the pleasures of anything in this life, of, of work or anything else, that you have everything in Jesus that's truly lasting and meaningful and joyful because you have Jesus. That's his guarantee. That's why Jesus' work is really enough. So your work is enough. Your work is good. It's not enough. It's never ultimately meaningful and joyful. But Jesus' work is. His work is always enough. I've had a number of jobs in my life. Um, being a pastor has its challenges, but I'd, I'd choose this one any day over what was my least favorite job I ever had, which was being a janitor in a church. I just graduated college. I, I needed something to do before getting married and going off to grad school six months later. So I became a janitor. And everything about that experience graded against my sense of who I was and what I wanted to do in my life. I paid minimum wage. I I couldn't even afford the rent. It was mind-numbingly boring because it was the same thing every week, buffing the same floors, setting up the same tables and chairs. It was extremely tedious. And it hit my my prideful heart right in, in the gut, which I know hearts don't have guts, but you get the point I'm saying. I was a new college graduate heading to bigger and better things. I couldn't really be a janitor, could I? I wish I knew then about the work of Christ for me than what I actually did. I read a pastor once who described the wisest and most spiritually mature person he knew who was a school janitor his entire career. Here was a man who did for decades what I only did for a few months. But he was cheerful. He worked hard. Because, this pastor said, he knew the Lord. That was the defining description of this man. He knew the Lord. And when you, when you know the Lord, when you know the work of Christ for you, And when you receive his work in faith, and when you trust that work every day, you can be like that man. You can know the freedom of your work not being a religion. And you can know the freedom of not trying to find ultimate meaning and significance in what you do. Because you've already found that in what Jesus has done for you. Your work isn't enough. But his work is. Let's pray together.